cold, yeah? Very cold. And, uh, but thanks for coming out on a cold day. So your hearts will be warmed with the Word of God, yeah? We also have our, our missionaries from Las Vegas again. Greg and Regina are back there, so... <laughs> it's always good to see you guys. Amen. That's his home. Yeah. Amen. <clears throat> I love that. I love that. All right. So let's pray and let's, let's dive into God's word. Yeah? Okay. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, uh, a cold morning. And Lord, we're thankful that we're in this building, Lord, and we're here gathered together to, to come together corporately and to worship you and to to magnify and exalt you and you only. Thank you for the precious time of worship. And Lord, I pray that and trust that the soil of our hearts have been prepared for the seed of your word. And Lord, that we would grow today and that we would leave this place different from when we walked in. I decrease that you would increase. I am to myself of myself, so fill me with yourself that everything that I say and do Every thought that enters my mind would be of you and not of me. We praise in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is today's text. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're now in part 3 of our series, From the Heart. Say, From the Heart. Now, you guys know this, right? Before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text which was chapter 1, verses 12 through 24. And Paul had a change uh, in his plans. He changed his travel plans. And he, he planned to go to Corinth. In fact, in, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, uh, Paul talks about his plans. And he says this at the end of verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So he tells the Corinthian believers, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And, and that was his original plan, uh, but, but things didn't work out that way, so he had to change his plans. And so some of the Corinthian believers were accusing Paul of deception and, and carelessness, that he was the kind of person who can't be trusted because he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. And apparently the Corinthian believers didn't remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 at the end of verse 7 where he says, I hope to spend some time with you. If the Lord permits, say that, if the Lord permits. So they were just mad at Paul, mad that he didn't show up, and they were being very critical of him. They accused him of, of fleshly wisdom, of being careless with the will of God and making plans just to please himself. His integrity, say integrity, integrity was being attacked. So, so what Paul does, Paul defends himself, and, he's, and, he's, and he clears things up. He wants to clear things up, and... Last week, I gave you two points. Last week, you might remember these points. The first one was Paul's conscience. Remember that? Say that. And that's in verses 12 through 19. And Paul testifies to the Corinthians that he has a pure, a pure conscience concerning his personal life, concerning his ministry, and the decisions that he has made. And, and, he's, he's not, and what he's doing here, he's, he's on the defensive concerning his integrity. Now, he could rejoice that his conscience was clear in regards to to his dealings with the Corinthian church. The grace of God, say that. The grace of God allowed Paul to be an open person, not resorting to what he calls worldly, or we can even call it fleshly, wisdom. So, so Paul's like, you know, 
my conscience, guys, it's clear. It's clear. And then he lets them know that he hasn't hidden anything from them, and he's not trying to deceive them that they didn't have to read between the lines that his writings were clear enough. Clear enough. Because why? Because he's a man of integrity, not duplicity. He's not going to deceive them. Now remember, Paul had originally made plans to go to Corinth before going to Macedonia and then coming back to Corinth after visiting uh, Macedonia, but, but, he, but things didn't work out that way. And this made, again, the Corinthian believers say that he must be a man who says yes, but means no, who says no, but means yes. And Paul simply tells them, as God is faithful, everyone say that. I love that. As God is faithful, so we, when he says we, speaking of himself, Silas, and Timothy, were faithful in what we said to you. Paul didn't say yes and mean no, or say no and mean yes, uh, like the Corinthian believers accused him of. Paul saying, we didn't, listen, we didn't go back and forth saying one thing one day and another thing another day. And he's telling them, judge us by our message, the truth that we preach to you. We preach Christ to you, who is completely Christ, who is completely reliable and completely trustworthy. Can someone say amen? And this should have made the Corinthian believers more trusting towards Paul. And then he says, pretty much, our testimony wasn't inconsistent. It was very consistent, just like the Christ uh, that we preach is consistent. And Jesus Christ, says Paul, is God's divine yes. All of the faithfulness revolves around Jesus Christ. The second point of last week's message was the believer's confidence. The believer's confidence. And that's in verses 20 to 24. And there Paul takes their eyes, speaking of the, the Corinthian believers, their eyes off of himself and onto Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the affirmation, in other words, the, the yes and the fulfillment, in other words, the amen of God's promises. And so Paul tells them, tells us, that as believers, we stand firm in Christ, not in ourselves. We stand firm in Christ, that we are anointed, say anointed, that God has set his seal of ownership on us and put a spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Good place to say amen. Then verse 23, Paul, what he does, he uses a solemn oath there to persuade the Corinthian believers of his truthfulness. And in verse 24, Paul, instead of seeing himself as some kind of lord, lording it over the Corinthian believers, he gives a great description of what ministers, pastors, shepherds should be, and that is fellow workers. Fellow workers workers. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message today is A Fellowship of Forgiveness. Everyone say that. Now I want to set the stage for today's text. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. And by the way, if you were with us in our series, Undivided from the book of 1 Corinthians, you would know this text. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. There, there, Paul, what he does, he addresses the immediate problem of sin within the Corinthian church. And the chapter opens with Paul saying, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And news reaches Paul of immorality in the church. Now, this wasn't a matter of a rumor but a matter that is actually reported. It's an ongoing thing. It was common knowledge in the whole church. Got to get this, common knowledge in the whole church 
that there was a particular incident of sexual immorality in their fellowship. Are you guys with me? Listen, this was a case of incest, say incest, between a professed Christian brother and his stepmother. And he was having sexual relations with a woman who was his father's wife. Now, in the Old Testament, such behavior was considered to be incest, even though the man and the woman were not biologically related. You see, the fact that she was his father's wife made her a part of his family, and any kind of sexual relationship with a family member was considered incest. And I want to tell you that even, listen, even the pagans, even the pagan people in Corinth wouldn't be doing this. Paul says, and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. They don't even do it. And you see, the laws of their own Greek society forbid incestuous relationships with one's natural or stepmother. And this kind of behavior was frowned upon by non-believers. Excuse me, non-believers, it was considered taboo to them. Now, Paul doesn't tell us uh, Paul doesn't tell us that this woman is a professing Christian, but we can assume that she's not. And why can we assume that she's not? Because Paul doesn't instruct the church to cast her out of the fellowship, but only the man to cast him out of the fellowship. And you see, the Corinthian church pride themselves on how understanding and tolerant they were. Uh, you know, they were like, we, we're, so, we're such a tolerant church, and we're such a loving body. We love everybody. That's the way the church was in Corinth. But listen, listen, friends. Loving everybody and tolerating everything everybody does are two different issues. Are you guys with me? Now listen, although tolerance might be the standard in today's politically correct climate, to tolerate, listen now, to tolerate blatant sin, friends. To tolerate blatant sin in the midst of our lives is to be sin in sin ourselves. We are not to tolerate sin as believers. Can I get someone to, to, to agree with me there? And Paul, what he's doing, he's rebuking the Corinthian church for pridefully and boastfully tolerating sin in their church, tolerating sin in their fellowship. And Paul's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I need to say something about this. I'm not going to keep quiet about this. I need to say something about what's going on in the fellowship. And Paul not only exposes the man's sin, listen now, but also the church's sin, the sin of refusing to discipline this man. And we can see that Paul is very distressed by the sin of this one man, but he, listen now, but he's even more disturbed by the sinful response of the church. They have become arrogant, Paul says, at the same time, are virtually doing nothing, absolutely nothing to correct the man. And you see, this is, this is the bottom line here. The Corinthian church was into permitting sin rather than confronting sin. And they actually thought they were showing love and, and understanding by their tolerance of this sin, and they were being cool and progressive rather than biblical. And they should have been mourning. They should have been brokenhearted, friends, that 
The situation was an ugly stain upon their witness in the world and horribly grievous to God. And you see, by tolerating this, this sexual immorality, friends, they were indirectly participating in that sin. And Paul's like, you guys aren't even exercising church discipline. And if you did, Paul says, it was done superficially. There's no real action. This guy obviously hasn't been removed from the fellowship. Exclude him from the fellowship, Paul says. And by the way, removing or excluding someone from the fellowship is the final step of church discipline. I want you to write this down. It's given from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And by the way, let me say this. Jesus, Jesus gave the steps to discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he, but, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you, listen to what he says, Jesus says this, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. This is the method that Jesus Christ dictated and what the early church practiced. And this is the most extreme type of discipline a local church can give to a professing Christian in sin who refuses to repent. Are you guys still with me? So at this point, this man had been warned of his sin by other brothers and sisters in Christ and then taken to the elders and then finally by some kind of public rebuke which is the last step in the, discipline, in the dis disciplinary process. So obviously this man didn't submit, to him, him, submit himself to the church discipline, and this is why Paul tells them to remove this guy, to exclude this guy, this man, from their fellowship. In other words, to deliver him to Satan. That's what it means, to exclude him, excommunicate him from the fellowship. Now I want to say this. Church discipline is to teach people to do the right thing. Are you guys with me? And to be restored, keyword, restored back to the fellowship, to fellowship, excuse me, to fellowship with God and to fellowship with the church. The whole reason for the disfellowshipping is restoration. Are you guys with me? It's restoration so that they'll come to the knowledge of their sin, realize their sin and then repent, and then be restored to the fellowship. Are you with me? Now I want you to notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good, he says. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So yeast, or leaven, friends, is a picture, a metaphor of sin, of evil, evil, excuse me, evil influence. And Paul's simply saying to the Corinthian believers, a little yeast, the man's sin, a little yeast, the man's sin, works through the whole congregation. In other words, a small part affects the whole, everybody. And Paul's saying by keeping this 
a sensuous adulterer in the local church, the whole church would be infested with sexual immorality because sin spreads like wildfire. And it must be stopped. Why? To protect the congregation. You guys with me? So Paul wrote this firm letter, 1 Corinthians, to correct them. Now here in 2 Corinthians, we see that this guy who committed incest is now sorrowful and he repented. Repented. Someone say amen. And Paul's like, okay guys, you know the story. Now it's time to bring him back into the fellowship. He's sorrowful. He's repentant. Now it's time to bring him back into the fellowship. Right? Now this brings us to today's text. Two points. Everybody say yes. Number one is the tears. Say that. And write that down, the tears. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And Paul writes, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For, I, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, but you whom I have grieved? Verse 3, I wrote as I did, speaking of 1 Corinthians, got it? So that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, he says, that you would all share my joy. So Paul's most recent visit to Corinth was full of conflict. It was unpleasant to Paul, so he determined that he would not have another sorrowful visit with them. And Paul's like, God knew I didn't want to come to you again in sorrow. Paul's like, I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy being the heavy disciplinarian to you. I don't like it. It's not fun. I don't get any joy out of your sorrow. To the contrary, what Paul is saying, my joy comes from your joy. And you see, Paul knew that another painful visit wouldn't be good for him because the constant conflict, constant, the constant conflict with the Corinthian believers could really damage his relationship with them. So this is why he thought it would be best, and I love what Paul does here, be best to give them a little room, got it? Give them a little room, give them some space to repent, give them an opportunity to deal with the problem themselves and get their act together. He didn't want to rebuke and admonish them all the time. And you see, friends, instead of producing sorrow, he decided, Paul decided to wait. I'm going to wait. Yeah, I can go and tell them and rebuke them and discipline them, but I'm going to wait. And instead of coming and having to be heavy-handed with them, he wanted them to work out their problems. He wanted God to work in their lives. And then he could visit them with joy, right? Since they were his source of joy. So, so here's the lesson. Knowing all that, here's the lesson. Are you ready? Here's the lesson. Wait for God to work. Got it? Say that. Wait for God to work. And that's exactly what Paul did. He waited for God to work. Listen, friends, in order not to stir up trouble, he decides not to come to Corinth, right, at this moment. And what Paul does, and what I love what he does, he demonstrates true, get this now, Christian maturity. Got it? True Christian maturity at work. Friends, listen now. We need to work on God's timetable, not ours. Now, I've learned, and I'm still learning, that there are times when I need to address something that I should wait and not jump to conclusions or go and, and either 
rebuke or, or discipline that person. There's, there's a time and a place when to do it. And I love Paul's example here. He says, I'm going to wait on God. And, and perhaps there's someone that you need to rebuke or discipline. And that's okay, but timing is everything. Amen? And I think we need to sometimes sit back and wait for God come on, to work. Amen? Verse 4, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, there it is, many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth, I love this, the depth of my love for you. And he loved them. Right? And the letter to them was better than a personal visit. Why? Because the letter could show Paul's heart. He didn't enjoy confronting the Corinthian believers. It was hard for him to do, but he had to do it, right? He had to do it, and he did it with many tears. Now, I love how Paul opens up his heart to them, and you can see Paul's love for them. Paul's like, it was love. Paul's like, it was love that led me to write you 1 Corinthians, when he says that. When he says to write you, he's referring to 1 Corinthians. And I did so with tears. It broke my heart to do it. I saw what was going on, didn't like it. It broke my heart, but I wrote you a letter. And I did it because, why? I loved you. And I wanted the best for you. You see, Paul wrote the letter out of a heart and motivation of love. He wrote the letter, the letter, so that they would know how much Paul loved them. Here's the lesson. Are you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Here's the lesson. True love disciplines. Say that. True love disciplines. True love, say true love, will discipline and rebuke even though it's not enjoyable. Right? It was hard for Paul. And he has no enjoyment whatsoever out of that. But he had to do it. Because, what? He loved them. How many parents here? Say amen. You know what that's like, right? I mean, I, I've never met a parent who enjoys disciplining their kids. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. You know, can't wait to this. No, no. But we have to. And the reason why we discipline them, the reason why we rebuke them, right, is why? Because we love them. I mean, if you, if you, don't, if you don't discipline your kids, if you don't rebuke them, there's something wrong with you. And the reason why we rebuke and discipline our kids, why? Because we love them. We want the best for them. It's not to hurt them, it's to help them, right? It's not to whip them, but to equip them. As your pastor, when I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a, a, a text, a, a topic, a subject from the Bible, and it seems kind of harsh and hurtful sometimes, it's not because I'm trying to be hurtful to you, but as your pastor, there's sometimes I have to bring a rebuke or, or discipline. Why? Because I love you. Do I like doing it? No, but because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care. And Paul disciplined them. He rebuked them. Why? Because he loved them. And that's what love does. Love disciplines. If you're safe, say amen. Sometimes in our relationships with those we love, we, we have to say hard things. Right? We do. And it's not easy, but if, if we truly love them, we will speak the truth. But don't forget, we need to speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4, 
4.15. Write it down, Ephesians 4.15. Remind yourself when I'm speaking to them, I'm going to speak to them in love. Yeah, what I have to say is true, but I'm going to say it in love. William, William Barclay, the Bible theologian, said this. Paul's example helps Christian leaders learn how to rebuke when we must. He used severity and rebukes very reluctantly. When he did rebuke, he did it without domineering. I love that. He did it with love in his heart and desire to see the best in those whom he rebuked. Yeah? Love. The tears, number two, is the treatment of the offender. The treatment of the offender. So what Paul does here, Paul recommends that the Corinthian believers forgive, say forgive, the brother who had sinned and repented among them. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. He says, if anyone has caused grief. When he says, if anyone has caused, anyone, okay, that's, this is a reference to the offender, right? To the, the man living with his father's wife. He says, so if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority, say majority. Now I want to stop there because when he says by the majority, this tells us that there was a minority, okay, who didn't want to exercise church discipline on this guy. Oh no, just love him. Let him do what he wants to do. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And the minority didn't, didn't want to discipline him. So he says the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is what? Sufficient. Say that. For him. So we know the story, right? We already know the story, right? Paul had cast the person out of the church, turning him over to Satan, in other words, removing him from the fellowship. And Paul is now saying that that person has paid enough. Guys, got it? He has paid enough that the person has learned his lesson. So follow me here. Paul isn't saying that this just, he's not saying this just because he knows how sorrowful the other person is. He's saying this because the man had truly, say truly, repented. The punishment was sufficient because it had brought true repentance. And what I love about Paul was that he didn't use the man's name. <laughs> you notice that? And I bet the man was forever grateful, right, to Paul that his name was not recorded in God's word. Can you imagine if his name was recorded there? Oh, that, that was you, you know? You see, this shows us, and I love this, and I'm learning so much by this. This shows us Paul's pastoral heart. It shows us his pastoral wisdom, his compassion, and his love because love doesn't smear someone. Love doesn't humiliate others. Love covers a multitude of sins. Get this now, get this. The goal of discipline isn't to produce tears. The goal is to produce a change in behavior. So the question should be, is the behavior changed? Well, this man apparently, right, Paul is making it clear, repented. And by the way, in the Greek, the word repent is metanoia, metanoia. And metanoia means about face 
to turn around. In other words, what he's saying here, there's a change in mind, there's a change in heart, there's a change in action. So the man repented. Metanoia. Therefore, Paul tells him not to be too severe and to consider the punishment, what? Sufficient. This man no longer needed discipline, Paul's saying, but needed now forgiveness. Look at verse 7. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. Did you get that? I want to stop there. So the time had come for words of what? Forgiveness, comfort, and counsel. Right? To encourage him. And Paul's simply saying to assure this man of the fact that he's back in the fellowship. Because the purpose of church discipline is to restore, not to destroy or to take revenge. Let's read on. So that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So the man's sorrow had brought him to repentance. But now Paul says, don't let the guy be devoured by his sorrow. In other words, by his guilt. Why? Why did Paul say that? I'll tell you why. Because Satan loves to use condemnation and guilt to pull us down and make us feel unworthy. Right? Paul says, hey, the man's sorrow had brought repentance. Okay? Don't let this guy be devoured by his sorrow guilt. Okay, encourage him, love him. Verse 8, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love. You got to underline that, highlight that. Reaffirm your love for him. I love that. Verse 8 is so amazing. Powerful verse there. I urge you, therefore, to what? Reaffirm your love for him. Notice that Paul, okay, says, Paul says, urged, right? Got it? Urged. To urge this this, it's an action, urge this action. He didn't order it, he urged it. Urged it. Why? Because true Christian love must be spontaneous and unforced, unforced, or it ceases to be what it professes to be. You see, forgiveness and comfort must be joined by a reaffirmation of love. Comfort, say comfort. Say help. Okay? To comfort and help him, this guy, to feel the security of knowing that he is loved by the body of Christ. Reaffirm your love for him. Verse 9. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test, say test, and be obedient, say obedient, in everything. In other words, Paul's saying, will you be obedient in exercising discipline. He's saying, will you be obedient in offering forgiveness? Well, the Corinthian believers met the test by doing what Paul said to do. And by the way, this action would also show that the church accepted Paul's apostolic authority because there were many in the church that were questioning Paul's apostolic authority. This was also a test of their obedience to his authority. Got it? Verse 10. If you forgive anyone... I love this. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Now, I want you to notice something, okay? I want you to notice something. Paul uses the word forgive or forgiven how many times? Five times. Five times. And his point is this. You know what his point is? This is Paul's point. 
We are all, we're all in this together, right? Right? You, me, and the man, right, who sinned. We're, we're, we're in this all together. You see, all of us stand in desperate need of forgiveness. We stand in desperate need of God's grace. And Paul, what he's simply saying is this. He's simply saying, this man needs forgiveness. You need to forgive. I need to forgive along with you because we all need forgiveness. Amen? Go back to the text. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. I'm going to read that again, and you got to get it. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Paul had forgiven the offender with the awareness that Christ was observing him. You see, all our actions, and you got to get this, what Paul's driving at, all our actions are carried out not in secrecy, but in the presence of Christ. Got it? That's why Paul says, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. He's watching what I'm doing. You better do what's right. Lesson, are you ready for the lesson? Forgive others. Forgive others. Say that. I want you to write this down. Some of you know this by heart. Ephesians 4.32, powerful verse. And Paul writes, be kind, got that kind, and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, right? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You know what forgiveness does? Forgiveness proves the genuineness of our Christian faith. And that we might not just be, listen, and that we might not just be forgivers, but quick forgivers. Get that? Quick, quick forgivers. Oh, that, friends, listen now, oh, that the love of God, the love of Christ might fill our hearts so that as we have been forgiven, and we have, right, we might freely forgive those who sin against us. So, that being said, question, are you living, as a believer, are you living in unforgiveness? Who is it that you need to forgive? Who is the brother or sister in Christ who you need to forgive? Perhaps someone here at Crowd, or perhaps someone at another church. Who is a brother or sister in Christ who you need to forgive? Okay, let's talk about outside the community of believers. Because the text is talking about the community of believers, right? But let's, let's talk outside of the community of believers. Who is it that you have to forgive? An ex-husband? An ex-wife? Huh? A co-worker? A boss? A neighbor? Friend? Who do you need to forgive? As believers, we are commanded, called to forgive. Why? Because we have been forgiven. Forgiven. We release others because Christ has released us from our sins. And you see, since we have been forgiven, we know what it's like, so we need to do the same, what, for others. 
We're not left to wonder, just sit there and wonder, right, what it means to forgive those who have hurt us. I also want to point out that Paul had also forgiven to what? To preserve the unity of the body of Christ. Did you get that? To preserve the unity of the body of Christ that he enjoyed so much with this church. Now follow me. He had forgiven the offender. Listen now. He had forgiven Paul, had forgiven the offender to frustrate Satan's desire to create discord and disunity in the church and between the church and Paul himself. Did you get that? Notice, notice Paul ends his appeal by reminding the Corinthian believers, all believers, us, the importance of forgiving one another. Hey, is it easy? No, but we must. And be quick to do it. Because the longer you wait, resentment and bitterness will build up in your life. Are you with me? And Paul says, hey man, this is why, why is it important to forgive? Why we are to forgive others? Well, look at verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us. That's what Paul's driving at. That's why he's saying, hey, his appeal is to forgive. Why? In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That's Paul's point. Do you see his point? What he's telling the Corinthian believers simply is this. If you don't forgive this man, if you don't forgive him now, that he has repented, you have allowed yourself to be tricked by Satan. Paul was aware, we should be as well be aware of the divisive operation of Satan within the Christian community. Oh, he loves it. The devil loves it. Satan loves it. We're at what? We're bickering and fighting against each other and not forgiving one another. He loves it. In the Bible, the text, the Bible tells us that we are not or ought not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Now, we're believers and, and hopefully we're in the Word of God, friends, right? We need to know how he operates. Well, we should know how he operates, right? I mean, what are his schemes? Well, Proverbs 6.19, write that down. Proverbs 6.19 says that he, the devil, Satan himself, he sows discord among the brethren. He loves that. He loves that. And guess what? God hates that. John 8.44. John 8.44 says that he is, Satan, he is a liar. He lies, right? In fact, it says he's the father of lies. Anytime you get that word father, it means originator. He's the originator of lies. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Revelation 12, verse 10 says that he slanders. He accuses the brethren. That's his MO. That's what he does. He likes to create discord among the body of Christ. If you're saved, say amen. Our ignorance, our ignorance of the way Satan works contributes to his infiltration. Unforgiveness invites Satan to take advantage of us. Are you with me? So here's a lesson. You ready for the lesson? Be aware of the enemy's plans. Be aware of the enemy's plans. I want you to write this down, 1 Peter 5.8. You might know this by heart. And Peter writes, 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and sober mind. 
Your enemy, say enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Devour. The devil, Satan. The destroyer is quick to move in where there is a void of love and void of forgiveness. Quickly, filling that opening with bitterness and division. His movements are all by our invitation. In fact, you know what? He doesn't have to do much. He sits back and watches us bickering and fighting and not forgiving one another, friends. Someone said this, the devil is like a mad dog that's chained up. He's powerless to harm us when we are outside his reach. But once we enter his circle, we expose ourselves again to injury and harm. You see, church, our unforgiveness allows Satan to set up a base camp in our hearts. And how sad, how sad for those who have set up their tent right dead center in Satan's campground. You know what he has? He has a sign. He has a sign right outside his campground that says, no reservations needed. Come, set up your tent anytime. No charge. You guys with me? And that's his ploy. He wants to get us to not forgive one another. If forgiveness ought to reign any place, it ought to reign in the body of Christ. Amen? So, let's not be ignorant of his devices. Let, let's not let Satan outwit us. Let's forgive others. I, I don't know who you need to forgive, but man, please forgive them. Don't allow the devil to cause discord or division in this church. Perhaps I'm speaking to one person, two, I don't know. Perhaps I'm speaking to nobody, I don't know. But we need to forgive. Why? Because we need to be a fellowship of forgiveness. Let's all stand.